0: Hi I'm Jim and I'm Eric and I'm Joe and this is Speaking of Race. So what do we have going today guys? Well
1: today we're speaking to two past presidents of the American Anthropological Association or for us in the know the AAA who've played very important roles in presenting the anthropological view of race to the public over the past several decades. First we have Yolanda Moses Professor of Anthropology, Associate Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Excellence, and Executive Director for Conflict Resolution at the University of California, Riverside. Good morning, Yolanda. Good morning. And our second guest is a longtime friend of mine, Alan Goodman. He's a professor of Biological Anthropology at Hampshire College. Hi,
2: Alan. Good morning, Jim and everybody, and it's a real pleasure. You you guys are one of my favorite, favorite podcasts. Oh, we love to hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you.
1: First off, to set the stage for our listeners, I want to point out that in the nineteen nineties, when Yolanda was president of the AAA, the association drafted and published a statement on race and responded to an update of the federal regulations on the official race and ethnicity categories for census and other governmental business. Allen also played a role in both of those activities. After that, they co-led the National Public Education Project titled Teaching Race and Human Variation, which was sponsored by the AAA and funded by the NSF and the Ford Foundation. That project produced an interactive website, Understanding Race, and yes, I'll have a link in the program notes for everyone, and a traveling museum exhibit that's been displayed at museums all across the U.S., and a companion textbook, Race, Are We So Different?, which is now out in an exciting second edition. Both of our guests have also published extensively on race, both in the academic and public arenas, and we're really delighted to be able to speak with them today. Joe, why don't you put your ethnographic training to use and start off our interview? (laughs)
0: Okay. Hi, Yolanda and Alan. Thank you both so much for being here. It's exciting to me to get to talk to you both because I have been using the race materials that you both were so instrumental in producing in my classes for years. And and I'm having a, a bit of a fangirl moment. <laughs> so, so thank you for being here. I guess it would make sense to start off with asking you to just describe this project in a nutshell for the listeners on the podcast who might not be familiar with it, how it came about, who was involved, all those kinds of things
2: this is alan why don't i start and i'll talk about the nutshell and then maybe yolanda can jump in on history and all the things that i screw up as she always does so well (laughs) This is a pretty big nutshell because it's a pretty big project. It essentially has been a kind of one of those wonderful group efforts within anthropology and without. And I would say the elevator speech is that it's really trying to explain what race is and maybe even more important, what race is not. And we've tried to do that through three intersecting lenses, science and especially biological anthropology and population genetics that works on the science of human variation, various aspects of lived experience of race and racism, and lastly, through the lens of history. It's been a pretty long-running project at this point. It's a multiple-component project, and some of the components are in a museum exhibit that's won a bunch of awards and would love to talk about that more a website that Jim mentioned. We have teacher training manuals and also two editions of the book that Jim plugged for us. Thank you, Jim, <laughs> that Yolanda and I wrote with Joseph Jones. That's my big walnut nutshell.
3: Yeah. And and I'd like to just add, this almost didn't come about. Part of it had to do with a meeting at the Ford Foundation where a lot of social justice organizations were sitting around the table with us anthropologists and turned and looked at us and says, you know, you all are part of the problem. Why we, we have this problem,
1: problem. Yeah. Wow. yeah.
3: And what we were able to do in the end is to show how our job was to unpack this for the public and to talk about how we move forward with this understanding, particularly in American society, where it is part of the warp and the woof of what this country is all about. And unless you understand that, then you won't understand how we can move forward. So some of those social justice organizations were a part of our 27 member national steering committee. (laughs) So we were, from the very beginning, engaged with the public on this project. And that's what I think has given it such sustainability over the past 15, 20 years.
4: Could you say more really quickly about what they saw as in particular the the problem with anthropology, why anthropology was part of the problem? And then how did that relationship change with those 27 members in the constituency over that time? How did they reflect and, and change their perspective on anthropology?
3: Well, first of all, we owned the history, the fact that anthropologists were very much involved with race science in the United States. And we talked about how early anthropologists anyway, until Franz Boas, were in fact helping to promote the idea of whiteness as the top of the race hierarchy. And what we were able to do with them, with the third leg, like the lived experience, is to talk about what happens when you actually believe that race is real? What are the structural implications of that for a society? And so we had the MALDAP, which was the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and a few other organizations that were a part of this group who helped us to think about how to tie those three strands together.
2: You know, for me, a really big moment was when Yolanda was president of the AAA, and I think it was about 1996. We had a big symposium at the American Anthropological Association meetings that involved linguists, biological anthropologists, anthropologists of all stripes to talk about race in their subfields. And we realized that we all agreed. We all basically agreed that race is a cultural concept and it has historical roots. It's real culturally. It's lived experience of race is real, but it just does not account for human variation. And so we all kind of looked at each other and said, what are we doing? I mean, we all kind of agree (laughs) But the public is out there, and the public just doesn't know what we've come to. They don't know that there's been this dynamic shift within anthropology. So under Yolanda's leadership, we did something that I think we've never done before, and I don't think any other professional organization has ever done, which has really worked hard to make a public education project, specifically about race.
3: We had other disciplinary associations, so it wasn't just ours. We had the American History Association, we had the American Medical Association, the American Bar Association, we had the Genetics Association, the Biology Teachers Association. So like I said, this was a project that was very democratic in that sense, that we were trying to get as much information at the time of how to make this project a public project.
2: Yes, and the end is that we took the lead and Yolanda, you were the one. I mean, you were the driving engine. You made it happen.
3: And what was really amazing about this is that our original intent was this to be for teachers Mm -hmm. to talk to students in junior high school and high school, and parents to talk to their kids in elementary schools at home. Because Judy Woodruff had given a talk on one of the PBS shows about how young people were hungry to talk about thorny issues, but didn't have the tools to do it. And it was an aha moment. That was one. And the other was all the conversations about race. I don't know if you remember that Bill Clinton was having around the country. And it was like after those first meetings of bringing people together, everything was just dropped and people were hungry for more information. And I just thought a public education program that gave people tools and explained the intersections of science, lived experience and history would be a more comprehensive way to understand it. And at first, NSF said, nah, you can't do it. It's too complicated. Oh, wow. And we found the Science Museum of Minnesota. And Al and I have a standing relationship with that museum and the curators. They said, if anybody can help you, it's the people at the Science Museum of Minnesota because they've done some really great exhibits for public and especially for young wow people. And so they became our partners when other places turned us down. At first, the Smithsonian turned us down. At first, the Chicago Museum turned us down because they basically said it was too controversial for their patrons.
0: Wow. Hmm. Wow. So the basic understanding of race that you're working with in the project is, as you said that race is a human invention, it's about culture, not about biology, but that race and racism are real and affect our everyday lives. How do you think those messages are faring in the current time? Well, I think they're more important now than ever.
3: And I think there's been a generation of us teaching in our anthropology courses in sociology courses, in history courses. So I'd say that the humanities and the social sciences, yes, you see some of this happening once our students get there. But I think that teachers in public schools and private schools, they don't really, I don't think, understand it as much as they should, the interconnections, because we still Uh, hearing students coming to us with these unnaturalized understandings
2: of what race is. Yeah, I think, Joe, there's good news. And then, uh, unfortunately, probably there's a lot of bad news still. And, you know, for me, you know, somebody that is really focused on the disconnect between race and human genetic variation. And, you know, for me, one of the major things that we're trying to show in the exhibit is that human genetic variation is simply non-racial. Humans do not have races for a number of reasons that I can get into, Jim has gotten into. The good news, I think, is that there's sort of a, a decreasing opposition Amongst those who actually engage in the data on human genetic variation, I think a scientific consensus has basically been built in the way that there's a scientific consensus now about climate change with a few outliers. There's a scientific consensus on evolution with a few outliers. In this case, the outliers, I would say, when it comes to Race and genetics are unfortunately people who get a lot of publicity, like Charles Murray in his book, Ah. University, Nicholas Wade, who was a science editor in the New York Times, but virtually everybody else now, you know, folks who work in human genetic variation, biological anthropologists are really super clear that race just does not work as a biological concept yet race is real. It has real effects. The problem, I think, is this hasn't filtered very well to the general public Mm -hmm. for the reasons Yolanda says. And I think the museum exhibit, the website, etc., have had some impact, as has other projects. But I think if you ask most folks today, is there something biological about race? They would answer, yeah, there has to be. It seems obvious.
1: Well, look at the difference in the COVID-19 impact on different racial groups. I was
4: hoping we would talk about that. Yeah, (laughs) I know.
1: You get that all the time from kids coming in. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's why the the intersections are so important, Mm -hmm. because the lived experience tells you why that is the case. If you look at the history of institutionalized racism in this country, and in our exhibit, we show all the laws from the early 1700s to the present that actually marginalized certain populations, then obviously the impact of that over time are that they're in structurally marginalized positions and are vulnerable people. So those are the kinds of things we try to get across.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our last episode was one about COVID-19 and about, just as you were saying, Yolanda, how structural conditions and laws over the past couple of centuries have put people of color in the way of COVID much more so than, than white groups in the U.S.,
3: and their ability to resist
2: the fact that race is real is so obvious in almost every way that you can look differentially at the effects of racism and so so racism makes race in a way so looking at educational differences incarceration differences yeah. you know for me wealth and health are probably the two clearest and most tangible indicators there's something on the order of 11 to 13-fold difference in family wealth between white families and african-american and latinx families the time we did the exhibit it was eight it's been increasing health differences uh, over two-fold differences in infant mortality between black and white families, babies, almost any way that you can look at health, there is a racial component. And what happens is in a time of crisis, be it Katrina, be it the floods around Houston, being at the heat wave in Chicago, and now COVID, it differentially affects poor communities and communities of color. Right. And what we're also finding is that communities of
3: color, it is predominantly poor communities, but research is also showing that for middle-class folks of color, particularly African-Americans and African-American women, they tend to have higher rates of infant mortality than white middle-class women because of
2: how the medical profession sees them. As Yolanda says, it's not just a class difference. Racism gets piled on top of class as socioeconomic status.
3: So the, for those people who say, well, if we just look at socioeconomic status, then all this racism stuff will be wiped out. No, that's not true. There are some very deep-seated no. cultural assumptions around race in this country that we you know, still have to break up somehow.
1: It's really exciting when you break some of those in a classroom, isn't it? When the light bulbs finally go on in their eyes.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, had students tell me, how do I go home and talk to my parents about this? Who, who don't believe? <laughs> yes.
2: Right. And I go, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Come coming back from the Thanksgiving break, which will yes. not have this fall, but that's another story. Talking to your aunt and uncle about it. I yeah. want to say one of my best teaching moments. Has not been my college classrooms, but working with eighth graders. And man, did they get it. Ah. And um,
4: they got kind of pissed off. Obviously, anthropology has grown in leaps and bounds over the last two decades, in part because of your project and really understanding its role as a field that has to confront race and racism head on. And you've both been working with populations in the, the K-12 world. What's the frontier now? If we're seeing, in some ways, we're seeing a worse resurgence or at least a more vocal resurgence of white supremacy than we've seen in years, Where can you make the biggest difference now?
2: That's a super good question. I'm going to travel back for a second if I can with you guys to my eighth grade class. And I think that's about the age that really needs to be targeted. And it was, you know, kind of at the lower end, but definitely within the range of our target audience for the exhibit but there's lots of impediments with standards and all of that stuff to doing something before kids get to college. Just one thing, what I was able to do is work with a relatively privileged school system that had an eighth grade program that combined English, math, social sciences, and biology. So they all came together and looked at, as Yolanda's talked about, the intersections of laws, history, how we define things socially and how we can mathematically talk about it and its relationship to biology. And one thing I did at the end with them is I brought in a Tums bottle. And at that time, the Tums bottle had a label saying, extra calcium is good for white and Asian women. And so I read it to them. And they got I got so know. upset. And why does <laughs> Hackum's bottle not include <laughs> Latinx and African? Women and maybe men too. Huh. And so they actually ended up writing to Smith Klein Beecham, and Smith Klein Beecham sent them to the FDA, and the FDA sent them to some bogus research, and they wrote back. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, but they That's really cool. got kind of a civics lesson. They put a lot of energy into it, and it was huh. really, really gratifying. And by the way, I don't think you get that label anymore
4: on a (laughs) Thomas. No, no,
3: no, they changed it. They, They actually did change it.
4: So is the frontier trying to hit educators? Is it talking to the teachers who deal with middle schoolers? Is it to get to the education colleges themselves and teach the people who teach the teachers before they go out into the classroom? Is that the frontier or where?
3: That's a wonderful question because that's the question that, We're asking ourselves, this was supposed to be a public education project, and I was then going to pivot and do something else. But this has sort of developed and grown on its own, and the three exhibits that have been circulating around the United States, the last one is just retiring and it's going to North Carolina permanently. And the three places where they are permanently, they're building whole infrastructures around them for their, oh. for their regions and for their states. One's in San Diego at the yeah. Museum of Man, and oh. one is at the Science Museum of Minnesota, and the third one is going to be at the North Carolina Natural Science Museum. Oh. And in North Carolina they want to use it statewide they want to create a statewide educational program because you know that's the state that has had a particularly high history history with confederate flags and statues and uh, on and on well what was very interesting when the exhibit was there and the results were looked at who went to the exhibit all the school kids went to the exhibit all the communities of color went to the exhibit there in Raleigh, Durham. Yeah. And the group that did not go were white families because they thought their children would be
1: traumatized by the exhibit. Oh, that's the whole white frame, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. And, and if I can say, I think a, a great part of the exhibit. One of the parts that I love the best and also we have, a, I think, a really nice chapter in the book, plug, 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 is on the history of whiteness and that white has been taken for granted so much. And we have a wonderful essay by Nell Irvin Painter oh, yeah. on the history of whiteness, another by Carol Makopadai on the word Caucasian. I think for predominantly white students, white audience, to really to turn it around and think about how they themselves have have been kind of an unrecognized race. Back to Eric's question about where the frontier is. and one of the things that I have to say at this moment is I think believing in the old idea of race as, based in biology as innate, as hierarchically arranged, as unchanging, is totally anti-factual, anti-science, and based on ideology. Mm-hmm. And that ideology is incredibly deep and ingrained, and yeah. you know, it was there before Trump, but Trump's given it cover. So yeah. a, a real concern is whether or not you can change thinking by providing facts and science and arguments and things of that sort.
3: So the idea for us in writing the book, the newer version, is to talk about what some of those issues are that are still out there that we have to deal with. And all of this is connected, as a cultural anthropologist, I'm coming at it from from that perspective, to this notion of power and control and who gets to make decisions and so to Alan's point, to whose advantage is it to keep this going? Who benefits from this kind of framing of who should have power, who should have control, how social relationships should be ordered Mm -hmm. and part of it is to break that apart and understand that there has been a role in this country for white nationalism. Mm -hmm. And there's been a role in this country to push back against the democratization of the U.S., Hmm. right? If you think about it, it wasn't until Andrew Jackson actually got in to be a president that this idea of the people actually leading the government, even though there were white racist people, for the most part, (laughs) leading the government, that it was to the advantage of the elite class that there was a buffer between certain people and laws and policies kept that in place and from the very beginning of this country the 14 slave states have had a lot of power in this country politically Mm -hmm. and i think people need to understand that it isn't just about how we treat each other there are systems that have been put in place to maintain a certain kind of society but our demographics in the united states are pushing us in different directions that are, are really changing that. And I think we have to understand the rise of populism and nationalism and the intersections of race, class, and gender, how all those things are a part of our political hierarchy as well as our social hierarchy. And power is a word that traditionally anthropologists didn't talk about because we studied a lot of powerless, or people who were lived in marginalized areas in the countries with that we studied. When we start studying our own society, and this is what race in this project does, there's a lot of learning that people have to redo because our textbooks don't tell those kinds of stories.
1: I love it when I get a comment from students in the race class about how they're pissed off because they didn't get taught this. That's right.
3: Why was that not taught? Why did we not know that? Exactly.
2: Um, I want to say, I think learning about the science and other aspects of race, uh, students frequently say that it's liberating. It, It really helps them out that racism or has been less about kind of personal interaction and more about the history and in institutions and as Yolanda says, power. And I think students also begin to realize that it's not kind of a zero sum game that, you know, it's like giving one group something and taking away, but that kind of anti racism I think, benefits everybody. The evidence is there. We all have a horse in that race.
3: (laughs) Yes, we do. We have a country in that race. Our (laughs) whole country, right? If we don't get this right, we're going to implode on ourselves. And that's not a good thing either when you think about it. I think there's a possibility of revisiting some of the riots that we had in the 50s and the 60s and the 60s, 70s, yeah. and in LA in the 90s, because you know, at this time, everybody's gonna have guns. So how do we change that? And I think part of what Alan is talking about is we wanna give young people the tools to say, this is not the world we want. And the teachers yeah. teach them as well. So hopefully the educational system will create some space So that we can have these conversations and not just, you know, follow standards. And I was thinking, is there anything good that can come out of this coronavirus thing in terms of education? Can we take some time to think about what are the most important kinds of issues that we should be talking about in our classes since everything is on Zoom, right? And maybe we should rethink the educational system. Right. What do we teach kids and is there a way for us to give them things that they can use in their lives? And this would be one of those things.
4: One thing that makes me nervous about the the K twelve educational landscape is the degree to which cities are resegregating schools across the board. And so you can get a city where kids can learn vastly different things in one school than they would learn in a different school. And they don't even get to come into contact with anybody who's that different than they are. And that that sort of bifurcation or trifurcation or however many furcations of the <laughs> educational system means that, I don't know, it, it makes me nervous that no matter what it is that we put out there curricularly, that the teachers themselves are trained so different and the, the systems themselves ask for such different things that we can't even necessarily get the kind of message across to students that we would like to get.
3: And that's and, what makes us different from other countries. Mm -hmm. That have ministries of education that control or have a lot of say in what happens. I totally agree with you. This is one of the things we do in the exhibit is to show how wealth accumulation allows people to have choices. And the choices that many families make who live in cities, they can sell their homes and move to the suburbs. Hmm and go to different kinds of schools. But those public schools in the inner cities are the ones that poor people have to go to.
4: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. There's not that choice, yeah.
1: The website, the book, and, and the exhibits all make that case really nicely. And I know I've benefited personally in my teaching from the material that you guys pulled together to make the point that it is the structure that creates the wealth, that makes for the differences, that makes race look so real to us.
3: Yeah, and if you grow up living in that environment, then for you, it's real, unless it's challenged. And we always challenge yes. our students, right?
2: One of the things that's also changed since the beginning of the project is this continuing bifurcation of news feeds. I mean, maybe it starts with school systems, but it continues. So obviously for anybody knows, if you go back and forth between MSNBC and Fox News, you realize we, yeah, we have at least two different countries, but you know, those are two different beliefs and what's real and what isn't. And so I think that is an increasing impediment to any kind of fact based inquiry.
3: Yeah, and that gets back to Alan's point about just teaching people the facts, it's not going to necessarily change their the way they think or feel about something because mm-hmm. their ideology is what's leading them. Right. Mm-hmm. What they feel comfortable with. And so part of our job I think is to get our students to feel comfortable moving from where they were to another place and giving them the tools to do that because they have been steeped, whatever community they come out of, in certain beliefs. And so there are students of color who also believe some of these things because they've been told that as well. Like you say, when the light bulb goes on and they understand, oh, okay. They get angry. A a lot of our students get angry about this. So you give them tools to take that anger and do something with it.
1: Well, thank you for spending the time with us this morning.
4: I'm Jim, the physical
1: anthropologist.
0: And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist.
4: And I'm Eric, the historian. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You can find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race.